Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to John Ray. His new novel is Gone to the Wolves. It's out now. We talk about why when he writes, he hides. Also why he loves moving between genre and switching up the stories he tells. And you can hear how much his view of his writing changes as he moves through the drafts. I almost always uh, find that my opinion is profoundly changed about what I've worked on when I enter it into uh, word processing software and give it a, a, a quick reread, I almost always find that my opinion of my writing has plummeted. It's, I almost always think it's complete garbage. But at this point, I, I know that's going to happen and uh, I'm able to work through it without a major uh, without a major crisis or meltdown. It's all on the way with John Ray in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. Uh, it's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they plan, how they plot things, how they give themselves the best chance of getting their idea down onto the page. Now, something else that can help you do that is the software plotter. They're sponsoring the show for a few more weeks, which means you've only got a little time left to make the most of the fantastic deal that they've given you with this show. They can power your writing. It's a tool that does what the site it's a tool that does what the title says. It plots, it helps you plan your books the way that you think. It helps you outline faster, organize smarter and turbocharger productivity. Now there's a lot of writing softwares out there. We talk about so many of them on the show. Uh, Plotter has a very sleek design so you can just feed into it everything that you're thinking to help you organize it around what you need to do, which is get the words on the page. And if you're struggling, we talk a lot about ways of planning the plot on the show, don't we? If you're struggling to figure out what's happening next, where your protagonist can turn, well, a Plotter has over 30 different plot outlines there. And they're not for you to just lift and drop and copy. 
it, it's all about giving you an idea of what could happen next, giving you a flavour, maybe giving you some inspiration on where you can take this. Over 30 different plot outlines from uh, some of the biggest authors, screenwriters around. Plotter helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else. It helps you strip it back to what is important and what you need to focus on. And I think the best way for you to see what it does and how stunning it looks and how helpful it can be is by getting to go.plotter.com slash routine and taking a look around. And while you're there, you can get 10% off the software with this show. It's a brilliant deal. Uh, fantastic that they're involved with the show that's only there for a couple more weeks. So make the most of it. So take a look, see what you think. And just watch for how it can help you improve the way that you write. To make the most of that, get to go.plotter.com slash routine. This week on the podcast, we're chatting to John Ray. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Award, and more prestigious fellowships from all around the world. He was named as one of the best young American novelists in the late noughties. He's published six books across genres. Sometimes he writes quickly. Sometimes he takes years to do it. He's moved from literary fiction to sci-fi. His new one is called Gone to the Wolves. It's out right now. It's the story of some high school outcasts who make a pilgrimage from their small town in Florida to the famed Hollywood Strip. And then they go off to Norway and they come face to face with dark death metal. And along this adventure, they experience mystery and love and loss all through music. John has managed to tell a story that deals with experiences that we all have, feelings we all have, but through different cultures that we might not normally know anything about. Uh, It mixes feelings of punk and metal with grounding fiction. It's a real-life adventure scattered uh, across different parts of the world. We talk about why his space is designed for him to be clear of distraction, also why a laptop accident has made him go way old school, You can hear how his writing space and routine has changed after effectively being homeless, crashing on a mate's garage when he was growing up. Uh, We talk through how he sorts out his time and energy too, all while raising a child. And there is bonus tips and advice in there from the incredible novelist Haruki Murakami, which involves sausages. What a strange sentence to say that. It's all on the way. Loads coming up with John Ray in a brand new writer's routine. We kick it off with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, I write in my basement. Um, I wrote my first novel when I was uh, out of a job and uh, essentially homeless in New York City. Uh, A friend offered me space to pitch his tent in uh, the basement of a warehouse where his um, punk rock band practiced. So I wrote my first novel in in a state of semi-darkness and cold and uh, that seems to work great for me so now I work in my own basement um yeah I I lived in a tent in New York City for a year and a half when I was writing my first book um I felt pretty good about it I was the only person I knew who wasn't in debt at the time um so now when I sit down and work I have my desk and just on the other side of my desk I have um a drum kit, a full drum kit and, a, and, a, and an assortment of musical instruments um, because I used to play uh, music more regularly. And uh, these days, instead of taking a, a smoke break when I'm a little bit stuck in, in my writing, I just go to the drum kit and, and bash around for a minute or two. It actually works just as well, if not better. 
Um, it's amazing the the writing in the tent thing, and then obviously getting a, get, getting a bit of success, so perhaps making more money, and and now writing in the basement. Quite often, when I speak to authors, uh, we we get a bit focused on the paraphernalia of what can be around you when you write. But I would imagine, from quite humble beginnings, maybe you felt you don't need any of that. Aside from writing in the basement, how much of your beginnings as a writer? just you in a 10 is, is echoed through your work practice and place now? Well, I find that the most important thing, um, the most important factor is really the most obvious factor, which is just um, reducing possible distractions to, to a minimum. Um, I'm easily distracted and I don't like to work. Um, for me, sitting down and writing, it's not a painful process. I don't want to overstate the case, but it's, I, I often describe it to people as, as holding one's breath while, you know, diving into a pool or something. Swimming underwater and holding one's breath is what it always feels like to me. So that's effortful and I try to avoid it. So that's part of why I, I work in the basement as well. You know, um, no windows, no distractions. I have a two and a half year old son. He doesn't know where I am. I'm basically hiding from the world down there, hiding from everything. And, uh, and that seems, that seems to be, um, yeah, pretty fruitful for me most days. Of course I have days where nothing happens. What do you see around you then? What, what, we need, we need some stuff around us, even if it's practicalities, there's no distractions, but would I find uh, post-it notes or plot points or a whiteboard, which you scrolled on? Is there anything of that variety near you? Oh, a whiteboard. Are there writers who use a whiteboard? Sort yeah. of like, like middle office managers? Uh, well, I, I'm sure they would rather think of themselves more like... <laughs> as, a, as artists. Uh, yeah, or, or crime detectives trying to, you know, piece together things. But is there, is there anything like that around you? Um, not these days. Uh, I have in the past. I find that every, every book ha- um, kind of dictates its own protocols and its own... Uh, working methods. It's, it is quite different for me from book to book. I have had projects, uh, larger, maybe more complex books, um, at the end of which I had an entire wall um, just covered in, in, in notes, sometimes written directly on the wall, things I'd torn out of magazines, things I'd found on the street while going for walks, you know. But these days, it's really just a dark, I don't want to give the wrong impression. My basement is actually nice and and comfortable and warm. It's not dripping or dank or anything, but um, it's sort of a mostly dark space. I have a nice old kind of vintage lamp with a paper shade that throws a nice, a nice warm glow on things. And um, I'm just kind of trying to see as little as possible around me as I work. I don't, I don't usually have a lot of notes for, for what I'm doing, um, although I guess that depends as well. Uh, the main thing I see when I'm writing is, um, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but an, a, a, wooden, a carved wooden skull, a really anatomically correct human skull carved out of wood that um, I found in a, in a flea market years and years ago. And that thing that this guy just kind of staring at me, um, I call him Theodore for some reason. I'm not sure why. Could be a woman's skull too. I don't know. But um, it just kind of, I guess, reminds me that my time on earth is limited and I, I should really get cracking as soon as possible. 
Wow, what a way to <laughs> what a way to visualize mortality and your productivity. That's I mean, it's a beautiful object. It's really lovingly carved by hand. I wish I could show it to you. Um, Theodore is my is my sidekick when I'm working. Uh, and what's the general setup of what you're writing on? We can get like a little bit niche and nerdy. Uh, like what software do you use? And maybe most vitally, what, what typeface, what font are you working with, John? Well, it's in- interesting that you should ask me those questions because um, neither of them apply to my writing process because I write on an electric office typewriter from about 1984 manufactured by brother, um, the kind that, that always gives off that kind of faintly annoying, stress-inducing hum when it's not being actively typed on. Uh, it's, it's an extremely ugly typewriter. I don't want to give your listeners the impression that this is some kind of aesthetic thing. It's a really, really ugly office typewriter that used to belong to my grandmother. In the year 2023, when your uh, capability to write on almost anything, uh, on any software that can make it so easy for you is is, is abundant, I I sometimes hear from authors that they write by hand, maybe the first draft, they enjoy the tactility of that, they think there's some connection, which is perfectly fine. But in describing your typewriter, you've called it ugly and stress-inducing, so I am wondering... Why still crack on with it? I mean, writing by hand is is all very well, I think, for, for many people. But to me, that's a bit too precious. You know, I really try to avoid anything, anything that could possibly romanticize uh, or glamorize the writing process. You know, for me, that would all lead to all sorts of issues, I think, mentally. I think I would feel a certain pressure then to to write at a certain level or about certain topics. I don't know. Um, so that's why I don't write longhand or write on a beautiful old Royal typewriter from, from the second world war or something. Um, I really intentionally chose the ugliest, most irritating writing implement I could find. Um, I don't write on laptops, uh, for various reasons. Um, I have a, you know, bright screens give me, give me a kind of, pain in the head uh, if I stare at them too long. And also, um, back when I was living in that tent underground that I was talking about just a moment ago, um, it really was this sort of industrial basement of a warehouse. And there was a moment when I was gone and a pipe burst. And my laptop, which had been sitting down there full of, I don't know, I think I was about 45 pages into my first novel, was just completely sizzled to a crisp. It was just, I came back and there was just, there was nothing to be done and nothing to be salvaged from that laptop. So ever since then, I've avoided writing on a first draft <clears throat> on anything that's, that's electric, you know, to, because it would just, I would be walking around worrying all the time that my, uh, my laptop was being soaked. I'm aware that this is not a rational thing because <laughs> one, can, one can back up one's documents now, I'm told, on a thing called, I think it's, you could put it in, them into the fog. I think that's the term. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. Something like that. The mist. The <laughs> yeah. mist. Um, but see, I don't like the sound of putting things into the mist or the cloud. That doesn't sound good to me either. So I'd rather just have them on paper. It also just gives me a, a, a really primitive sort of satisfaction and pleasure to know that when I hit the, I don't know, the Q key, that, that a Q will magically appear 
on the paper in front of me. Um, I can always go back and exit out because I'm also a terrible typist, so I'm constantly making mistakes, um, which means that my first drafts end up looking like some kind of cipher or, or Cold War code. Um, but, I, you know, it just works for me. I really find that as varied and idiosyncratic as, as human beings are in their general lives, writers are so, I'm sure you found this on your show, every writer has a completely different way of going about it. And uh, the only real advantage to maturing, quote unquote, as a writer is that you figure out what doesn't work for you and you narrow things down to what does. Well, let's touch on that then. Uh, what have you discovered? And we'll get into the, the writing day and the actual process in a second. But what have you discovered doesn't work for you? Oh, so many things. <laughs> so many things do not work for me. Um, having anyone around me when I'm writing, having music in the background. You know, I've always been so envious of um, visual artists that I know who can go into their studio and and blast the, you know, Wu-Tang Clan and just get to work. And, it, you know, a lot of, I think, visual artists are helped by having music because it sort of allows them to stop obsessing too much about things. I would love to, to be able to do that, but I, I have to be down in a dark basement. Um, uh, writing on a word processor uh, for the first draft, I've done it. Um, maybe I think on two of my, my books. Uh, and of course that speeds the process up, but that's exactly the, the problem for me. I don't want the process to be sped up. I, I actually want to slow it down as much as possible. Um, and I want to have to type my entire first draft into, you know, enter it into a, a computer for the second draft because it forces me to really, you know, on some level process every choice that I made in that first draft. And it means that there's a big leap forward, I think, in my writing, in readability and quality from that scary looking first draft to the second draft, which is the first one to be entered into uh, word processing software. You mentioned the benefit of maturing as a writer is you get to know what you don't like. And you say that you want to you want to slow it down. You want to be very conscious of uh, creative decisions that you're making. Uh, throughout your career writing novels, when did that become apparent to you, that working slowly, being very uh, considerate over the words you're putting down w was vital to how you write? I think that became clear to me very early on. Um, you know, like most people in their teens or 20s, I was very impatient. and. Um, it was a truly horrifying moment when I first realized just how long it was going to take to finish the book that I had started. You know, um, I think like a lot of people, I thought, well, if I manage to write a page a day and I'm writing a short book, let's say it's 212 pages long, I'll be done in exactly 212 days. Uh, and that, of course, is just not true. I, I mean, I do know some really amazing writers who, um, uh, who, who work swiftly and it's extremely efficiently and don't have to do a lot of revising. Um, I mean, the writer Marlon James, for example, once confessed to me almost sheepishly that there were whole stretches of his Booker Prize winning novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, 
that he just wrote and never revised. I mean, he read through what he'd, ri- what he'd written, he found it good, and off to the publisher it went. I mean, it's kind of amazing that he's still alive, you know, that I didn't put rat poison in his, in his porridge. But uh, there, are, there are people like that. Um, Colson Whitehead is also very fast and very efficient. He used to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm working on this book. And I think, what is it now? It's October. I think I'll be done um, maybe around the 15th of July. And then on the 15th of July, the bastard was done. Um, it's just, these are people who really, I'm cowed by them. I'm hum- I feel humiliated in their presence because it takes me years and years and years. Um, I just, I don't even become in any good in any sense that you, you know, anyone, anyone else would agree with until probably the, the fourth revision or the fifth revision, you know. Check this out. I've spoken to authors who uh, their contract dictates they need to publish two or perhaps three books a year. Oh, good God. That's my worst nightmare. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, I mean, I may overdo it. I may overdo it. Um, But that kind of pressure would just, would just, you know, I'd really just rather uh, work in a, in a grocery store or something than do that. I mean, that just really seems awful. And I say that as someone who has worked in, grocery stores uh for many years in high school and and i you know that's the worst job i can imagine <laughs> wow um you, 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 sorry john you mentioned the, the when it has to go on to a word processor a proper thing uh I, I, like do you do that and if you do how much does looking at it on a screen when you can bear the bright lights how much does that kind of change your opinion about what you have worked on I almost always uh, uh, find that my opinion is profoundly changed about what I've worked on when I enter it into um, uh, word processing software and give it a, a quick reread. I almost always find that my opinion of my writing has plummeted. It's, I almost always think it's complete garbage. But at this point, I, I know that's going to happen and uh, I'm able to work through it without a major, uh, without a major crisis or meltdown. Um, I just, I understand that, that my writing process is, is so unbelievably unglamorous and just a, it's a thing of drudgery and repetition. It's, I always just describe writing and revising as, as hitting on a, on a fairly decent joke when you're in a bar with friends and, uh, trying it out on them and finding that it's actually, you know, it has some potential, you know, needs a little tweaking. And then you just spend the next two or three or four years repeating the same joke over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Uh, you know, it just eventually the joke just isn't funny anymore uh, to quote the Smiths. Well, the obvious question there then is if, if so much of the process is heart wrenching torture for you, why, why bother? Why, why, why carry on? What's the, what, what, what keeps, I think, what are you on? Are you, is this your sixth novel? I can't this is my think. sixth novel. Yeah, yeah. It's gone to the wolves. Why, why keep coming back? Whose job does not consist 96% of, of, to 96% of drudgery? You know, I mean, that's the nature. That's almost the very definition of a job. Um, I mean, I'm happy with my job. I like, I like, I like doing what I'm doing, um, you know, from like the middle distance, you know, taking a few steps back regarding what I do each day. It seems it seems quite all right to me. It seems, and it also it just, it simply feels like the, like the right thing for me to do. I didn't always 
uh, intend to become a writer. I tried out many different things. I, I always wanted to do something, I suppose, something creative. Uh, but I, you know, I floundered and flailed around in, in almost every branch of the arts at one point or another. And writing was the one that, um, that it was the only one really that seemed to work. Um, so, I mean, I suppose that's the short answer for why I do it. I wake up in the morning because uh, my son Julian is screaming or laughing or giggling. Uh, and either he uh, comes, into, comes into our room or my wife or I will, will rush over to his room because he's, he's usually in a fairly good mood until he decides he's not, which is, you know, happens within about three or four minutes. Um, when we figured out who's doing what in terms of the getting child ready for, um, for daycare preparations, uh, I'll find a moment to slip out of the house. I live in Park Slope, uh, Brooklyn on sort of a hill, uh, a pretty neighborhood. And I, um, just walk down. Fortunately, I only need to walk about half a block to my local um, coffee shop, which is called the Hedgehog. And I go into the Hedgehog with my little tin cup that I bring every day. The baristas think that's hilarious. I'm the, I'm the, the weird man with the cup. Um, I get myself a cappuccino with, um, with whole milk. Sometimes I'll get a croissant, sometimes not. Then I rush back to the house in time to accompany my son to his daycare, which is not too far away. We can walk there. And then I'm usually pretty impatient to get back because um, the older I get, the less good I am at writing in the afternoons or the evenings or, or, or at night. I used to work that way all the time. The afternoon, the late afternoon into the evening, that was usually, you know, let's say in my 20s, late 20s, early 30s, Maybe, maybe up until my late 30s, that was really my sweet spot. Um, I would procrastinate terribly and, and do anything but, but work until about two or three in the afternoon. And then, and then I'd have a few productive hours, which usually was, was good enough for the day. These days, I find in part because I'm not 33 years old anymore and in part because everyone in this house is terribly sleep deprived except maybe our child. Um, I just only have a few, a few really, I don't know how to describe it, a few hours of sentience uh, in the first half of the day. And after that, I'm just kind of, um, just kind of in a fog, um, in, a, in a cloud, really. I mean, maybe that's this mysterious cloud that they keep talking about where we can store our, our data. I'm not sure. But it doesn't work for me. So basically... Um, as soon as possible, let's say around between nine and 10, I go down into the basement, um, which I, I refer to as my cave. My wife refers it, to it as the, um, I think she calls it the soul dungeon. I go down into the, uh, what my wife calls a soul dungeon around 930. And then I just stay down there until, if I'm working on the first draft of a book, um, I stay down there until I have about 500 words. Um, if things are going wonderfully, I might end up with 700 words, 800 words. On very rare occasions, I might make it to a thousand words, uh, most of which will be discarded later. 
And um, that sort of quota system works for me. It doesn't work for everyone. That's that's for sure. But the sort of Anthony Trollope, Graham Greene, 500 words a day rule, because I'm such a work avoidant, you know, lazy idler, um, that is the best system for me. Uh, and so by noon or by lunchtime, I'm done with my creative work for the day and the afternoon is spent paying bills and, and um, you know, going grocery shopping. And um, if I'm lucky, uh, sneaking off for a, for a beer around the corner. I have many questions to ask. How creatively, I mean, you mentioned the mist and the fog, the cloud that's in your head. How, how creatively exhausted do you feel after 500 words? I don't know if I feel exhausted. Um, I think if you, I would say, speaking only for myself, that if I were to work, if I were to write to the point of mental exhaustion, I am absolutely certain that the preceding few hours of writing would not be yielding anything particularly worthwhile. Um, I don't think one should write to the point of exhaustion. I think one should stop when one is still feeling at the top of one's game. Um, and that's why, you know, so many writers will tell you that, that the actual time they spend writing is maybe two hours, three hours a day. Um, of course, there's a lot of stuff before and after and all sorts of things that are going on. But again, it sort of knocks me back to that, to that swimming underwater and holding one's breath. Um, uh, analogy that I that I used earlier, you know, I mean, if you hold your breath too long, you're going to start, you know, you're going to, you're going to pass out eventually, and your brain won't be working so well towards the end. Um, I, I just feel, again, because there's this impatience that all writers feel, and I think many beginning writers feel particularly, um, there is that urge to just just keep going and thinking, oh, well, look, I've written 500 words, I could keep going and, and write two pages today, or maybe three or four or five, I could write a whole chapter today. But unless you're uh, what a certain friend of mine refers to um, as a Stephen King writer um, and other people I know refer to as an amphetamine writer, um, you know, unless you're taking speed or you just naturally have that kind of metabolism and brain, you're just not going to be able to, to perform because it is a, a kind of performance, even if no one's watching. You just won't be able to, to perform so well uh, after a certain point. Um, and the writers that I do know um, who, who will work all night long and they'll just have like an incredible sort of, you know, what the Germans would call Sturm und Drang, you know, this kind of like this, the romantic image that we have in movies as well of the writer tearing his or her hair out. And, you know, the corner is filling up with crumpled pieces of discarded manuscript. There are people who work that way, but then they don't work for the rest of the week because they're completely destroyed, you know. And since since a novel takes so long to write, um, you know, if you're a poet or a painter, that it might be different, or you're a songwriter, I suppose. But you will cross the finish line, I think, more quickly and with something that's more worthwhile if you do just a little bit every day. I'm very much in the slow and steady wins the race camp. I, I, I want to find the balance between just a few things that you said. So, uh, you know, 500 words is the aim. 
you might end up writing to a, a thousand, but perhaps some of those might be cut, but yet you're quite careful and considered with your words. But yet when you put them on the word processor at the end, you're unhappy. So you end up editing quite heavily, right? There's a, there's a balance in that. So when you are writing your first draft, how perfect do you find, and you're considering this, how perfect do you find every word needs to be first time round? Well, that's very easy to answer. Not at all. I don't, I don't find that they need to even be decent the first time around. Um, my p- personal way of maintaining my productivity is <laughs> by drastically lowering my standards until they're, th- you know, they're basically down in the sub-basement. Um, I even joke with friends uh, other writer friends um, uh, that when they say they need to go uh, work on their work on their manuscript for the day or, or or work on their novel, where they would say that, I usually just say, at least in the quiet of my own mind, extrude the product. And that is a that is a phrase that I first encountered in an industrial advertising video. That uh, I, I had a brief job when I lived in Texas. Um, working as a, I mean, it's almost too much to say a film editor, but helping to, to put together sort of what were called industrial videos, which were basically just videos that companies were making for internal use, you know, to show to employees and so on. And one was for this PVC pipe making company. And this phrase, extrude the product, kept being used over and over in the video. And I thought, oh, that is, I think that may be the single least romantic or or glamorous way to talk about writing that I've ever heard. Not that they intended it to refer to writing. And I thought, if I just think of it that way, I will never be inhibited. I mean, the downside of that is then you have more work when you're revising. You go back to that first draft and you're like, my God, this is this was this was literally written by uh, a chimpanzee on ketamine, you know? And and then you obviously have to do a lot of work to get it to a place where anyone else would want to spend even a minute of their day reading it. Uh, yeah, well, I guess that they say in the first draft, you're telling your story to yourself. And may- maybe maybe that, that's what it is. Maybe it's a chimp on ketamine for a little bit. Um, the, yeah, we all have a little chimp on ketamine inside us. Um, if there's only one takeaway from today's conversation, it should be that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back with more from John in just a second. If you're enjoying the show, uh, remember you can always help us out. It's a one-man team here. I do all the research, all the booking, all the reading, all the chatting, all the editing, all the publishing. It's all me, basically. If you would like to help support me doing this, and if you'd like us to carry on bringing you these chats with some of the best authors around as often as possible, you can do that by backing the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. By pledging to help us out there, you get uh, our immense gratitude as always. You get merch, there is bonus content, there is even a way for your book to sponsor the show. So if you've published something, if you don't think it's had the plaudits, the praise, the press that it's deserved, if you need someone to sing from the rooftops about it, let me do that. You can make that happen by pledging and becoming a backer over at Patreon. And I know I say it every week, but it really is important to emphasise. I know that times are tight. I know that no one can really spare a lot. So anything that you can send over goes an extraordinarily long way. I really do promise that. And it just means we can carry on bringing you these chats with the best writers around as often as we can. To help that happen, have a thought about backing us. Pledging to support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then, chatting with John Ray about his new novel, Gone to the Wolves. It tells the story of some high school outcasts, some metalheads who make a pilgrimage to Hollywood and then to Norway. They experience all of the death metal and learn a lot about love, loss and life in between. It's what I love about, well, books and doing the show, getting to chat to authors. I get to speak to writers of completely different books across all genres and by learning about them and why they wrote it. And I think it makes you more open to reading something that you would never normally encounter, chatting to the author about their motivation behind the story. And I really like discussing that with John in the part you'll just hear. We also talk about why he's keen to move through genre. There is also an amazing bit of advice from the author Haruki Murakami. Well, secondhand advice from John, really, which involves Bratwurst, of all things, It's an odd combination for the show, nothing we've really touched on before. Let's get back into it, shall we, with John Ray chatting through how much he plans an entire year of book writing. Well, I used to be, um, you know, again, to refer back to Anthony Trollope, you know, he was famous for not only having a daily quota of words, I believe in his case, it was a thousand words, which he would write before he went to his day job at the post office which is also kind of astonishing. Um, but he would never fail, apparently, to hit that word quota, you know, weekdays, weekends, completely, you know, immaterial when it was. He would never fail to hit that quota. And he claimed that if he finished a novel at pay, uh, you know, at word, um, at word 784 of his 1,000 word quota, he would simply use the remaining words to begin the next novel the same day. And when I was beginning as a writer, or I suppose not, when I was, be- when I, when I was beginning my, my career as a published writer, I, um, I really aspired to that approach. Uh, I never achieved it, of course. It's completely insane. But if you take as long to write your books as I do, 
you know, I think my fastest work was, was maybe uh, three and a half years. And the longest it ever took me to write a book was eight full years. Yeah, I was I was looking at the that would have been the gap between lost time accidents and low boy. That's right, right exactly. Low boy was I think my fastest, and lost time accidents was was the longest it took me, uh, just shy of eight years I think. Um, I just felt that I didn't have the luxury to then take a year off or I don't know go for go for a, a, a long walk through the Rocky Mountains uh, with dear friends reminiscing about old times. I just really felt that. I had to have something queued up and ready to go when, you know, if possible, even begun before the preceding novel had been published. You know, my, my goal was always to be kind of midway through or deep into the first draft of something when the preceding book actually hit the bookstores. Um, and I was able to do that quite well for, for a very long time, in part because it took me so long to write my books. I had plenty of time to sort of daydream and fantasize about all the books I would rather be writing than the damn thing I was trying to get finished. So I usually always had two or three or four potential projects in mind by the time I was done. This book actually, Gone with the Wolves, uh, which was the most fun I've ever had writing a book, nevertheless, after it was finished, I haven't begun anything new. It's partially because we have this this small child, um, and because I'm trying to to um, you know uh, take as much of the the work in that direction uh, off of my wife's shoulders because she's going back to work. I, I I haven't begun anything new this time. Um, I'm not in a in a great hurry, uh, and I do have two or three things in mind, but. Um, from a from a purely pragmatic or kind of financial point of view, uh, it's always best to have something queued up and ready to go. I would say, just in that gap between Low Boy and Lost Time Accidents, that was the longest, as you said, eight years. Um, like, how how did you keep pressing on with that? I, I know that for me, I have such a dreadfully short attention span that that perhaps. If I, if I still couldn't get it done after a, a couple of years, I, I would, you know, put it in the drawer and it would be forgotten about. And what what made you keep coming back to it for, for, for eight years? Well, I'll tell you quite honestly that that was three or four years into that process or once it had become the longest I'd ever spent on a book with no end in sight. Those few years there, let's say the fourth, fifth, and sixth, uh, and seventh year, I don't know, the second half of that, that was the one period in, in, my, in my writing um, career that, that was truly painful and difficult um, because I found myself in this position three or four years into this project um, of feeling as though I didn't want to go on it didn't seem to be working. I'd taken on a topic which was essentially experimental physics, uh, you know, every, this certain very difficult period of, of, of physics um, that I didn't, I wasn't sure I was, I was intellectually the equal of in any way. I really, I really felt that I was in over my head. Uh, and there were all sorts of structural challenges and there were different kind of tones and, and styles in the book, some of which seemed to be working for some people and others were working for other people and no one could agree. 
Um, the only agreement was that it wasn't working as, as it stood. That was a really brutal period, but I felt I'd already spent three or four years. I was, I was in so deep that I couldn't bring myself to, to just cut and run. It just, it was just intolerable and, 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 um, and unacceptable. It just wasn't an option for me. Um, you know, what's funny is that when I finally did finish the book, I felt that it was in some ways the most personal and the most kind of purely, I don't know, reflective of, of the type of books I would like to write, you know, in the best of all possible worlds uh, that, that I've ever written. And, and I think of all my books, it's the one that um, most frequently someone will, will get in touch with me or I'll see something in social media about how, how you know, the, the few people who read that book really seemed to be, get passionate about it. And some hated it passionately as well. So in some way, I mean, I can't say even now that I regret that. But uh, I mean, there were many, many days when I thought I should just, um, I don't know, go back to school or, uh, you know, which would have been odd for a 40-year-old man to do. But I mean, not impossible. Uh, I just, you know, any, if someone had offered me a job uh, as their pool boy, I probably would have taken it. Uh, How much do you remember about a moment when it finally clicked, when when you felt okay, this is this is actually finally coming together. Interestingly enough, earlier you asked me whether I had anything like a whiteboard or things on the wall or what I was looking at when I was working. I remember a moment about five and a half years into the writing of the Lost Time Accidents, um, when I sat down at my desk was looking out across the room at this enormous wall. I had, there's a large room where I was working in those days with a skylight that kind of beautifully sort of cast light on this wall that I had completely covered with scribblings and notes and things torn out of magazines and snapshots and objects I'd found on long walks and all sorts of things that had these lines connecting them. And I, I just looked at this incredibly elaborate, almost, almost a you know, almost an installation. And I thought, I don't need any of this shit. And I, I got, I stood up and I just started taking things down off the wall. And, um, within the week I had taken everything down, thrown most of it in boxes, thrown some of it out. And then I actually got some paint and painted the wall completely white again and erased any trace of this thing that really represented the past, I don't know, five years of my life. And, you know, clunky and obvious as that gesture might seem, it, it did seem to free me. Or maybe it was just a symptom of the fact that I had figured something out. But uh, once I cleared all that crap out of my line of vision, things went much, much more swiftly. So many writers that I speak to uh, are more genre-based, so they find their lane and kind of stick to it to a degree, be that crime, be that uplit, whatever it is. Whereas, yeah, you've kind of floated around, right? I mean, you were talking about that 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 book, which is a touch more sci-fi that you struggled a little bit with. This one's uh, it's hard to kind of frame it, but it, it you know it's this kind of it's it's, it's a metal a metal rock uh, <laughs> themed book, for want of a better, more succinct phrase. Uh, why why is that for you? Why are you kind of focusing on so many different things, always wanting to experiment with something new? 
Well, I think for that very reason, um, you know, it takes me a long time to finish a book. Uh, it's always like the beginning of a whole new education for me when I start. And that's what excites me and gives me the kind of momentum and curiosity uh, and drive to, to tackle such a, such a long, you know, years long project. Uh, and usually by the, when I'm finished with whatever I've been doing, I'm kind of done with it. I mean, I feel like life is too short. The prospect of just going back and embarking on a new project that would be essentially a variation on what I had just done, um, I, it sort of depresses me, I, I suppose. Um, and this creates problems for me as well. It, it's part of why it takes me so long each time, you know, because I have to find my way forward. I have to settle on the kind of mood I want, the structure that best suits the story, the, the tone I'm going for, the, the, just in terms of language, the sort of style I'm going to use. And um, I'm really learning as I go, which then, of course, means that I have to revise quite a bit more than I might otherwise have to. Um, and also, I just love so many different genres. You know, I've, I've written books, as you, as you mentioned, Lost Time Accidents was my sort of celebration of and tribute to um, speculative fiction and, and SF. Um, and I've written books that uh, have more than a touch of the fantastical to them. I've written books that are very, very naturalistic sort of historical fiction. Um, and I suppose a few other books that are just labeled literature because bookstores don't know where to, where to shelve them exactly, you know. Um, but for me, that's, I mean, that is the core satisfaction and excitement and joy of writing is to discover whole new things that you're capable of and find out things out about yourself that you didn't know. Sometimes you discover things that you're absolutely not capable of, and those just have to go straight into the trash can. This novel is sort of set in the heavy metal demimonde, you could say, of small town Florida in the 80s. The characters are almost exactly the same age uh, the, that I would have been at the time. Um, and even though it really does play in this sort of world of this sort of subcultures of people who are, are metalheads, is, at least that's what we call them in the United States. Um, what do, you, do you know what you call them in England? Someone who's really, really into metal? Is that a hesher? No, no, I don't, I don't know what hesher means. You'd probably still call them metalheads, I, I think. Um... In any case, these, are, these, these kids that are these three these three really close friends who kind of we travel with throughout the book are very passionate metalheads, but that's really not what the book is f fundamentally about. For me, it's really about the friendship between these three very, very different uh, young people. And then as, as they sort of grow older and try to become adults, how they, how they survive the world and all everything that it throws at them, some of which is pretty scary. Um, but it began for me with the friendship as well. I got to know um, a kid a little bit younger than I was, who was from this small town in Florida, uh, Venice, Florida, which is the uh, winter headquarters of the Barnum and Bailey traveling circus and has always been a very, very freaky place as one might imagine. Um, and he just started telling me these crazy stories about, about what it was like to grow up in this part of Florida that is completely forgotten about and overlooked, you know, a really flyover zone is what you would call it in the States. And um, how people would kind of get so bored there and get so crazy that they would start to do all these crazy things. And uh, I think the first anecdote he told me that really stuck in my mind was um, 
during one particularly long and sweltering and kind of deadening Florida summer, uh, his next door neighbor, this sort of mild-mannered man who I believe had some sort of office job, just completely lost his mind, quit his job, bought a shovel from the local hardware store, and started digging a hole in his backyard. And dug and dug and dug until he'd made the hole as wide and as deep as you possibly could within the confines of his backyard in this little town in Florida. And then he went out in front of the house and started charging people admission. And when he told me that, I just thought, oh my God, I mean, this has to be put into a novel somehow. And the other things kind of developed and came later. I mean, it just happened that as he was growing up in this part of Florida, there was this real boom in this new kind of subculture, this new subgenre of, of metal called death metal, which then went on to, to conquer the world. These, these bands were selling, had gold and platinum albums. They were selling 500,000 copies of their records worldwide, making the most anti-commercial, terrifying you know, most people would say unlistenable noise. So a fascinating time to be a teenager and going to shows and kind of discovering yourself as a, as a fan of underground music. And from there, it just kind of took off. And, and um, I, would, I would love to say it wrote itself, but that's not quite true. Uh, you, you say it took off. Uh, and, you know, we've heard about the quite long process that it takes it requires for you to write a book how, how much kind of planning comes into it when you have that idea you want to focus on these kids down in florida the man with the big pit uh is it just a case of you going to your typewriter and typing away how much planning is required for you to embark on telling a story again it depends on which story i'm telling um you know i'm certain that writers who uh, primarily write crime fiction need to put a great amount of time and attention and care into uh, plotting and the architecture of the books that they write. I'm much more intuitive. Uh, if I have my characters, let's say I have two or three or four or five characters more or less in my head, and I kind of understand the things they want from one another and don't want from one another, uh, and I have a location and um, most crucially, when I've hit on the kind of rhythm and, and, and style that I would like to use, uh, it's quite intuitive from, from that point forward. Um, and many writers that I, that I adore work, work that way, even though sometimes it seems as though you're cheating because you're not really putting in the kind of level-headed, calm, ob objective work, planning and structuring the novel. I, I just simply don't work that way. I was once... Um, for a whole series of strange reasons in Tokyo, Japan, and um, a long time ago, got to know the writer Haruki Murakami, um, in part because we were both passionate record collectors and we would just go shopping for, for vinyl albums. And once when I was quite stuck uh, with an early novel of mine, I kind of spilled my guts to him and told him that, you know, I felt that I was, had painted myself into a corner and I had no idea how to proceed. And I, I, I should have planned everything out. And he kind of looked at me and the first thing he said was, do you, do you like that? Do you like that sausage that you're eating there? We were having lunch in like a kind of German 
kind of beer hall style restaurant in Tokyo. And I was eating this bratwurst and I said, this bratwurst you mean? He said, yes, the bratwurst. And I said, yeah, it's, it's actually very good. He said, that's the next thing you write about in your novel. <laughs> I said, what? He said, put the bratwurst in the novel. And it was such a preposterous thing to say. Uh, and at first I thought it was a completely useless piece of advice. Maybe he was even just sort of taking the piss, you know. But what he was really saying was anything can be put into a novel. That's one of the great things about a novel. You know, it's large and expansive enough that it, it can kind of metabolize almost whatever you throw at it, depending on how you do it. Um, but he was really saying just write about what you what you're experiencing and, and, cer and certainly try to write about what gives you pleasure in some way. And um, I, the next day sat down and worked, uh, you know, a, a scene with two characters eating and it did in fact involve Bratwurst into the novel. It later got cut out of the novel, but it definitely propelled me forward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is the definition of intuitive unplanned writing. And I do think that that is what Haruki does. I think that's how he's written every single one of his novels, for better or for worse. Lastly, uh, you mentioned that you've not started to really write anything else since publication of Gone to the Walls. You've got a lot of family stuff out there. And, and I, I, I might know the answer to this just based on gaps that you've had between books in the past. At what point will you start to get worried that nothing's happening? Is there ever a moment where you have to try and force an idea? Um, I think I've already gone through the period of being worried that nothing else is happening. And fortunately, um, over the last month or two, uh, new ideas have come to me. And I've, I've also sort of remembered some things that I'd considered doing in the past. So I find myself in a very happy situation again, um, just with a one-year delay of having two or three or four potential projects in my head. Um, and at this point, it's really a matter of, of choosing which one to, to take a chance on. Thank you so much to John Ray for coming on the show. That brand new book, Gone to the Wolves, is out right now. Next week, we're chatting to prize-winning author Corey Ajmi about her brand new novel, The Marriage Box. In the meantime, you can support the show, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You've not got long left to take advantage of the brilliant discount and deal we've got with the people over at Plotter, fantastic writing software that can really change the way that you plan and you write. To make the most of that, get to go.plotter.com slash routine. Give us a follow on Twitter. We are there at WritersPod. We're always putting YouTube shorts on, well, YouTube and little clips on TikTok as well. And you can get in touch with us at writersroutine.com. Use the contact page there. And I will see you next week with Corey Ajmi. Until then. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.